Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Take Cast. My name is Davis Matic. You can find me on Twitter at Davis Matic. In this episode of the show, I was delighted to be joined by Michael Cox from The Athletic UK and also the author of two of my absolute favorite books on uh, on the game of soccer, The Mixer, which came out in 2017, and the Zonal Marking book, which if you follow Michael on Twitter, you know is his Twitter name, at Zonal Marking. Uh, Michael is an incredibly accomplished author uh you know just uh, one of the one of the best journalists in the game uh in the game uh, the beautiful game well we call it soccer they call it football uh but i think if you if you have any passing interest in the game at all i think that you will really enjoy this interview that we have with michael uh, about his book about the the world game of soccer right now and uh you know just a couple interesting questions about how the game may tactically change over the next few years and uh of course, if you want to support the show, you can always leave a rating and review on iTunes. That is very appreciated. You can also subscribe to the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash TakeCast for bonus episodes and to support and keep the show going. And of course, we are presented by rotoexperts.com, the best fantasy football projections, rankings, and content that you will get anywhere on the internet, and you can get 10% off of that using the promo code MATTEK, M-A-T-T-E-K. And now let's get into the show. All right, everyone, would like to welcome Michael Cox from The Athletic to the show. You probably have, have uh, heard his name, read his columns, you know, uh, across, uh, you know, many, many newspapers, many outlets over the years. Michael is uh, gracious enough to share his time with us to come and talk about uh, his new book, appropriately named Zonal Marking. Michael, how are you doing? Uh, I'm very well, thank you, Davis. It's just started absolutely pouring outside, uh, which is kind of typical for London summer. But other than that, I'm very well. Well, there we go. So, uh, you know, first things first, what went into your decision to author another, uh, you know, soccer or, you know, pardon my Americanism (laughs) book so soon after The Mixer? Because I actually just read The Mixer only about six months ago, and I still found a lot of the things going on in the book, a lot of the... A lot of the team building and tactical discussions going on in that book, I still found that stuff pretty relevant to to the football now. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, that came out two years ago, so hopefully it's not too uh, too dated by now. Um, in regard to doing the the second book, to be honest, it was always my intention to to do this book. Um, I wanted to write first and foremost. I wanted to write a book about European football, but uh to to kind of dive straight into such a big topic with my first book i think would have been a little bit too ambitious so um i kind of ramped up to it by doing you know the first book about the premier league that was something i was familiar with um or more familiar with um and then once i uh yeah once i felt comfortable writing a book and got to grips with how you do it uh i uh you know felt felt ready to move on and and this one was more difficult because it involved kind of researching in different languages which is beyond my capabilities so i had a, a kind of team of researchers to help me so it was a much bigger project 
Yeah, and uh, so I guess I, that's actually an interesting thing. Is what it? What was the research like for the book? Because so if you're if you're reading Zonal Marking or if you read the Mixer, I mean there are there are anecdotes that probably a hundred people in the history of the world have read. Like there are there are clips from every biography or autobiography of every athlete. You know Edwin Vandersar's biography. Mm-hmm. How many people do you think have read that book? Like it's got to be a very limited sample. Yeah, that's the funny thing about a lot of these books. I mean, players' autobiographies generally aren't particularly exciting reads. Um, but at the end of the day, they've got to, you know, they've got to fill 300 pages with stuff about their career. Um, and to kind of put that all together, um, you know, if you've got a team and you kind of read autobiographies of six or seven different people from that team, you can kind of find inconsistencies, you can find patterns, you can find you know, funny little things that crop up. So, yeah, reading autobiographies is a big part of the research, um, but maybe not the funnest part. Yeah. Uh, another another thing that I think is great about, specifically about uh, the, the new book, Zonal Marking, is a lot of uh, a lot of the discussion in the Dutch chapter is about, you know, these, these Eredivisie games from 1992, like, you know, these really early games. What was the process like of trying to find uh, clips of these games was it easy like were you able to find most of the games kind of on YouTube or was it was it a real hunt to find some of the footage of these like early Dutch teams to be honest most of the stuff was on there I mean most of the Ajax stuff from the 1990s is on is on YouTube or on the internet and in kind of season review videos so there are a few games where it was tough to find the whole 90 minutes um, but you could find the goals you could find the the key incidents so yeah, it was um most stuff is on there just in in sometimes not particularly uh easily packaged formats but yeah, you'll get kind of a whole week's review of Serie A games on on YouTube it's just a case of hunting it down and doing a bit of research and being clever with your search terms but you can usually find it. So this is this is probably a unique response to one of your books, or probably only American response to your books. But uh, like all of these guys, from basically before 2014, 2015, I I have like no frame of reference for soccer. So one of the mm-hmm. cool things about engaging with your books is. Um, like, like when you talk about a play from 1995, the one, the one that I last looked up was the Danny Blind to, um, I think why I can't remember the Dutch forward, but the, the pass against Argentina, the 60 yard ball across, I'd never seen that play before. And that's this really famous play in football history. And I, I'd never seen it. I had no frame of reference for it. So one, one of the best things about reading your books is, being able to read about these plays and how they originated from a tactical sense. And then, you know, I'm sitting there with my phone and I can go find that play on YouTube and watch it. It's like, it's like a very cool, like kind of uh, like multimedia experience. Yeah, that's cool. A lot of people have said that. And I think that's, that's been really nice to hear, you know, like you say, a lot of people in the U S um, where I know soccer has become, you know, so much more popular in, in recent years and, and people around the world as well. Um, who were kind of intrigued by the 1990s and that's all a little bit unfamiliar to them. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of people have said they've gone back and, and viewed the YouTube clips, which is kind of cool. Like I, I did think of kind of putting together a YouTube playlist of all the clips in there, um, but I never got around to it. So it's nice that people are doing it anyway. That would uh, that would do numbers. That would be like I that would be a super popular thing, though. I don't know. I don't know if that would be super worth your time because I, I'm unsure how uh, easily that would be to monetize. But 
I have a I have a more philosophical question that I kind of thought of that was sitting in the back of my head while reading both of the books. Uh, so if the major European soccer football leagues, you know, the the Premier League, La Liga, uh, League One, so on and so forth, if they were constrained by a salary cap like the MLS is or, you know, all the other major American sports, I've, I've just wondered, what do you think the ideal distribution of salary would be? And then also, you know, what tactical alignment do you think most managers would go to? You know, basically, is there a position that you can fill for cheap and, it, you know, it doesn't weaken the overall product? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think it's it's really comparable to, you know, the situation in European football before 1995 where you had the, the three foreigner rule. Um, mm-hmm. So, you you know, you had a kind of similar situation where you could have three superstars and everyone else, you know, would have to be nationals from that country so you kind of had a similar thing there um and the pattern generally was that the foreign players would be the attackers um so barcelona in in cruyff's time is a a good example they had uh romario and they had stoichkov and they had michael laudrop and later george hadji and really uh, the only defender they had uh that was foreign was ronald kuman who was a defender but who was you know unlike any other defender around was you know, had an extraordinary goal-scoring record and a brilliant passing range. So I think generally when it comes to these things, it's in the final third where expensive players make the difference. I think defensively, it's more possible to compensate for individual quality with organisation and teamwork. So, I mean, I don't know whether you can really look at it in terms of formations because obviously it would depend on, on the quality of players or, you know, the characteristics of players you had. But, you know, I think if it came into force, I think, the forwards and the the attacking players, by and large, um, you know, would be the the ones outside the salary cap. Yeah, my my thought was that most teams would drift towards like a four two three one with just really fast, but maybe not super tricky wingers, and then you know one really expensive midfielder, whether it be like a box to box like Luka Modric type or like a number ten like Messi, and then. Uh, you know, also probably the modern game. One, of the, one, I think one of the biggest differences I was able to pick up on from your books is fullbacks really went from being defensive players to like for for a lot. You know, like the bottom half of the Premier League, fullbacks are like their most important attacking players now. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly there was a point in time where you know a lot of teams were playing four four two against four four two, and and it was the fullbacks who had most time on the ball, really. Um, and I think playing fullback is, you know, when you're playing fullback, you get a good view of the pitch as well. And I think that's important because you know when to time your runs and, and uh, you know, you get a good vision of the pitch in terms of distribution as well. I mean, I still think the fullback is, you know, it's not really a position that anyone grows up wanting to play. I think fullbacks generally converted from wingers or midfielders or sometimes from centre-backs. Um, but yeah, they can be very important in the modern game, certainly. Yeah, I mean the that's the 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 funniest. The, I thought the funniest line from the mixer was that uh, the right back was just always the worst player. It was all so they, so it means you were right footed, but it means you weren't fast enough or skilled enough to be a winger, and it means you weren't smart enough or tactical enough to be a center back. Like that was, and it to, it does totally make sense if you think about you know where football was in like 1980 or whatever. But I just I always I thought that anecdote was really entertaining. 
Yeah, nice one. I think uh, I think that's Gianluca Vialli's uh, theory originally. So, yeah, sometimes you see, I mean, someone like Trent Alexander-Arnold, of course, is just a fantastically technical player. Right. So when you see a right back like him who can do other stuff, you know, brilliant passer, a great crosser, can come inside and use his left foot, it feels... Uh, you know, a little bit, uh, a little bit strange because you're not accustomed to it. But yeah, as a general rule, I think right back's probably the least glamorous position on a football pitch. So in the uh, in the new book, of course, entitled Zonal Marking, there are uh, six different, like distinct chapters, all dealing with different countries, different leagues, different coaches, and uh, I, I think all of the trends, though, in in soccer right now, are kind of coalescing into like six teams you know the teams with the most money and I kind of wonder what effect do you think all of this money and all of the the super 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 talented players kind of just going towards these six or seven like mega rich teams what effect do you think that that is having on tactics yeah it's a good question I mean I think first and foremost it's made it a little bit more difficult to analyze um, the effectiveness of coaches, because as mm-hmm. you say, there are there are some teams that are so dominant. So you look at what's happening in Italy for this season is Maurizio Sarri, who you know people have made a big fuss about the fact he didn't win the league with Napoli. He's gone to Juventus, where he's almost guaranteed to win the league. And I think you know, barring something spectacular where he gets a hundred points or something, I think if he does win the league with Juventus, it would probably be less of an achievement than coming second with Napoli, um, because that Napoli side really was. You know, in individual terms, quite inferior to Juventus at that point. But he did such a good job that they were able to compete. So I think it's made it more difficult to to judge tactical uh, intelligence from managers. And in terms of individual games, I think we see more games that have a defined pattern now because, um, you know, for the top six sides, if they're at home to one of the weaker teams, it's generally just about trying to you know break down a very deep defence. So I, th- I think it's it's maybe discouraged the lesser teams from going away to the new camp or the Bernabeu or whatever and, and having a real go. And of course it was always difficult for them back in the old days, but I think now there's such a, a clear divide between the big teams and everyone else that, uh, you know, it's, it's rare to get a game where you're wondering which side is going to dominate. It's, it's quite, you know, there's, there's quite a set pattern to a lot of the games, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't even I can't even remember the last time there was uh, like uh, a little bit of drama in you know Manchester City versus bottom half of the table Premier League team or you know the same for Real Madrid. I guess actually I guess Real Madrid they had they had some moments of drama last year, but I I, I also think that uh, yeah one of the things is it's it's harder to see the on field impact of the coach. You know we think we we think of like Jurgen Klopp and, and Pep Guardiola as these amazing man. Managers, but I don't. I don't actually know, other than like the Gegen pressing stuff that Klopp did with Dortmund, and that he had. Like other than other than like the hard press, I think I would be, I, I would be, I would be hard pressed myself to say what is what is Klopp doing tactically that is so different than his peers. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know Klopp's an interesting one because when he you know first came to European prominence at Dortmund, there was just a very set way of playing all about the you know very aggressive press like you say and i think mm-hmm. he's developed his style a lot more at liverpool you know the the way that the front three plays i think is reminiscent of the way barcelona played under under guardiola with firmino playing as a false nine and two forwards running in behind so yeah this i mean there's you know so much to go through 
uh, as a coach these days, football is incredibly complex and incredibly intricate. So, um, you know, it's all about the fine details. Yeah. So, so while we're while we're talking about this, I, I think there's like an interesting discussion to be had on you know just sort of tactics versus talent overall. You know, as we as we can both concede, you know, some teams they're just so talented they're not going to lose. Some teams don't have enough talent, so they're not going to win. But just like I've always kind of wondered, for example, you know, what would what would Brighton Hove Albion look like being coached by Pep Guardiola? Like, what what do you think a coach of who holds his players to that standard might look like when the players are inferior? Yeah, it's always one of the great, uh, you know, pondering topics in football. And, I, you know, I think uh, I think Guardiola's shown himself to be quite a flexible coach throughout his career. Obviously, he, he favours technical football. But, you know, everyone thought that when he went to Bayern, and, you know, he kind of thought this himself, um, that, you know, when he went to Bayern, he was just going to transfer the Barcelona template onto his new players. In the end, that didn't really happen. He kind of learned to adjust to the... The German mentality and with City, again, technical football, he's he's done a lot of uh, good in terms of promoting possession play. But again, there's been some differences where he's had to adjust to the English way of playing. So, you know, I think with someone like Guardiola, if he went to if he went to Brighton, he'd be able to adjust to the players he has there. Of course, there's always going to be a, um, you know, there's always going to be a, a great unknown with that, really, because we, we don't have many examples of managers going down to bottom half clubs but um what i would say is i think the the standard of manager in the premier league at the moment is probably the highest it's ever been um and you know sometimes you get examples of teams towards the bottom of the premier league appointing someone like ralph hassenhutel who'd finished second in the bundesliga that just wouldn't have happened even five ten years ago so we do have a lot of really good managers in the premier league and i think it's very interesting tactically at the moment yeah i mean one so one of the one of the very interesting cases of that is Rafa Benitez being hired at Newcastle. So the, Rafa Benitez has a whole chapter dedicated to him in the mixer and his time with you know some of the the biggest clubs on you know the biggest clubs in the world. And it's it's so bizarre for someone who was not watching soccer when Rafa Benitez was at the top of his powers to imagine him as the manager of Newcastle. And I, I actually wonder what his job was like at Newcastle, like what his tactics were like, what his relationship with the team was like relative to how things went at Liverpool. Because if you, I guess if you sort of read between the lines, you, you would have thought Benitez probably might even rather be at a small club because he, he just wanted players to listen to exactly what he said, as opposed to giving them, you know, that, that license to roam. Yeah, I, th- I think you bang on with, uh, with what you say there. And I think, I think Newcastle kind of suited him as well because um, I think of Newcastle as as a club, not as a team, of course, but as a club kind of similar to to Liverpool, that kind of big city vibe, tremendous history, you know, famously very raucous fan base. And I think they just really appreciated Benitez coming to, coming to Newcastle. So you're right, it's a good example of someone who went from Real Madrid to Newcastle at a time when Newcastle obviously not as strong as they were in the 1990s. Um, but, you know, as you say, I think his mentality, even at Liverpool, you know, who were a big club at that point, well, of course, still are. Um, but they, you know, they kind of had to adjust their game and, and play more defensively under under Benitez, who was very much about organisation and um, and discipline and and really trying to find weaknesses on, on the uh, in the opposition on the on the break. So, you know, it kind of was different to if Guardiola, who's very much a front foot manager, went to side like Newcastle. You know, I think Benitez was quite well suited to um, 
to Newcastle's task at that point. Yeah, I mean, he was ready to come in and teach bad defenders or average defenders how to defend better. And, you know, he already had uh, like wingers or wide midfielders in place who were ready to track back. So it was like it was a pretty good fit. Uh, So something that is not at least explicitly mentioned in the books, particularly, or at least it hasn't been uh, up to my reading about halfway through zonal marking is, you know, just the new wave of analytics in soccer right now. You know, we have um, StatsBomb. Uh, uh, Ted Ted Knutson's company and a lot of these other private analytics firms who have you know very explicit deals with these you know very big European soccer teams, both in terms of like their scouting departments and analyzing how the teams play. Have you have you started to see an on field shift, uh, like a, a you know sort of a sort of a revolution of sorts, like is happening in American professional basketball on uh, on the pitch yet, or are we still kind of a ways off from that? Yeah, I think there's been a subtle change and, and one that's pretty comparable to, to basketball in terms of the, the shot locations in the Premier League. Um, I think I'm right in saying for the last six or seven seasons, the average distance a shot is taken from in the Premier League has come down every year. So because there's been so much focus on expected goals and um, you know favorable shot locations, a lot of managers have realized that um, you know more than ever before, they've realized that you basically are better off risking conceding the ball uh, and, and trying to work it into a better position rather than shooting from 25, 30 yards. So, yeah, that is a notable, noticeable impact um, and I think very much owes to analytics. Um, elsewhere, I think it's we're still in pretty early stages of, of how analytics is going to uh, change football tactics, but, you know, it's, uh, it's a, an area that's moved on so much in the last five or six years and I think you know, maybe in another two or three years, we'll be able to sit down and say that there's been a, another major impact of it. I think the the comparables between the Europe, like European soccer and American football in that in like the respect to analytics are very clear because people who are like you know proper football men in England they tell you the same thing about expected goals that you know lo- long time you know high school football coaches in the United States of America they they you know they would they would view analytics sort of with a similar style of disdain. Whereas on the other hand, you know, really smart coaches in Europe, really smart coaches in America have started to, you know, the very best, right? So like Bill Belichick, you, we we know for a fact the New England Patriots have kind of wholeheartedly embraced analytics, have used that in their style of play. I, and I just kind of wondered anecdotally if you've heard like, you know, is, is Klopp really into analytics? Is, is Guardiola going over spreadsheets in between games? I mean, probably not them specifically, but I mean, City their and team. Liverpool... Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, City and Liverpool have been the, the two clubs who have, you know, invested the most in analytics over the last five years. Um, so it's probably no coincidence that they are the two dominant teams. Um, so, yeah, I think it's there's a lot of people working in football analytics at these big clubs. And I think maybe the most interesting question really is how that information is fed to the managers and how it's fed to, uh, to the players. Um but yeah, I mean, there's there's more emphasis than ever on on numbers. I think over the past ten years or so, it's progressed a lot. Yeah, actually, that's a that's a that's a question I'd love to ask pro athletes when I have them on the show. So I've I've asked. 
like pro baseball players, how they like to have the analytics information fed to them. And, and the response I got was that uh, a lot of the times it, it, it will literally come in like a spreadsheet, like a, like a binder with like highlighted information. And when we had pro golfers on the show, uh, it was, you know, the, the, the process of like hiring someone to analyze your game is a little different. And uh, when, when we talked to football players, they said the, the biggest thing is that you, you want to have the positives reinforced as opposed to someone telling you what you can't do. And I actually think that it, that's something that comes up not even related to analytics, but in the books, it, uh, all this friction between these superstar players and these coaches generally comes when the coaches tell them not to do something. So uh, in the first chapter of Zonal Marking, it's uh, Van Hall telling his wingers he can't try and beat two guys off the dribble. And uh, so I guess I, I'm wondering if you have any insight as to like how those conversations would go now. Like how how would you know uh, one of the top managers come to one of his players and say, "I need you to do something different." Yeah, well, I think I think for certainly the perception of coaching, I think has changed a lot in certainly in England over the past fifteen twenty years. I think it did tend to be all about managers being strict and being. Mm-hmm. disciplinarians and basically telling players not what to do and i didn't think you know i don't think there was enough emphasis on you know managers giving players new skills and giving them possibilities and that's certainly something we've seen from uh from guardiola who's just very good at getting you know slightly raw players and turning them into more efficient players um so yeah i, I think that probably goes you know the analytics side probably goes hand in hand with uh, the general development of uh of coaching over the last 20 years. Yeah, the things are things are much different. Oh, one of the things from the outside that I've always wondered is um you know, how does like a soccer player define their position? So I, you know, I because it's such a foreign concept like, you know, all 11 players theoretically could be anywhere on the pitch at any given time just if the ball bounces the right way. So do you think that it is possible for players to like, and there are examples of this in the books where guys switch positions. But one of the ones I always wondered was like, Danny Welbeck was always this really good pressing defender for Arsenal. And they never had, well, until recently, they never had a good defensive midfielder. And I wondered, well, why, if he can press so well this high up the pitch, why could he not be, you know, a good defensive midfielder? And there, you know, there's the example of, uh, you know, the, the Steven Gerrard slip chapter in the mixer is an example of a player going from up forward and then moving back and then the that you know that moving back actually being like a a big fatal flaw in the future but like what do you think the process is like of you know changing position in soccer well i think it varies massively um i mean again that's something that maybe can be linked back to to analytics because you can you can basically break down what players are doing in various positions and I know that Sam Allardyce who's kind of considered an old school manager but was probably the first manager in England to really embrace analytics fully was very good at redeploying players in different positions so he had a a striker called Henrik Pedersen who he changed into a left back for example and that was based upon you know some key performance indicators and the fact that he was able to do can't quite remember what the uh, specifics were but uh, he was doing something a certain number of times that basically he wanted from his left back so he was able to to make that shift. So I think in general in football these days, you, you tend to get players moving backwards. You know, I think you, you take any kind of technical side, whether it's Barcelona or Manchester city and look at where all those players 
played when they were 16, 17, and generally they will have been midfielders or attackers, and they gradually get convinced to move back into less glamorous positions and turned into defenders. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that a lot of managers have specialised in over the years, and yeah, it can can almost lead to you almost reinventing a player. Yeah, I, I, my my current favorite example is how Pep Guardiola is just choosing to solve his left back woes by just continually uh, just moving midfielders there. So it was, it was Fabian Delft for a little bit last year, and now he's got uh, uh, Zinchenko, Alexander Zinchenko from the Ukraine, who plays number ten for his national team. Just straight up attacking midfielder for his national team is the is the primary left back for Manchester City. I just every time Zinchenko starts, I think I think it's hilarious. Yeah, it's been really interesting to watch, obviously. Yeah, like you say, Delph, uh, kind of box-to-box player in Zinchenko, a bit more creative. And yeah, it's it's been interesting to see that with, you know, Guardiola's got quite a unique system of how he deploys his fullbacks with them basically coming inside to act like extra central midfielders. So it works particularly well there. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that develops this season, especially because, you know, obviously we've still got Mendy there, who's often in and out of favour with, with Guardiola, but you know, on his day is, I think, a really complete left back. Um, you know, great going forward and, and probably better defensively than Zinchenko as well. So it'll be interesting to see how how that plays out, especially because um, Sané's out injured. So you kind of want a little bit more, you know, forward thrust and speed on the outside. So, yeah, maybe maybe Mendy will come back into the equation. Yeah, and well, and they also bought you know one of the best right backs in the world, uh, even though that position is more or less held by Kyle Walker. Uh, you know, thinking Cancelo might play on the left and be tucking in, or I, I actually kind of think maybe he just wants to transition Kyle Walker to center back. Yeah, I think I think both those things are options. I think you're right. I mean, he's he's so flexible, Guardiola, and so keen on having so many tactical options that I think. Uh, yeah, it's certainly true that those things are both on the cards. All right, uh, I want to I want to talk about some of the anecdotes from the books. I just I just just to you know to, to kind of hook people in a little bit. What are what are just some of the most like entertaining or funny anecdotes that you found while researching for the book that you didn't know before going in to go write you know one of the chapters or whatever? Uh, that's a very good question. Um... Maybe not necessarily an anecdote, but I, what I did find really interesting was, um, you know, when I was researching Dennis Burkamp, um, who was a wonderful forward that basically was fantastic because he interpreted space uh, in a very intelligent way. And I basically went through his book and just found six or seven examples of, you know, everything he speaks about is in relation to space, whether it's, you know, finding space between the lines or why he likes chipping the goalkeeper or you know, famously, he was uh, an aviophobe. He didn't fly to away games, which was of- often a bit of a problem for Arsenal. And even that, he said, the, you know, the only thing I didn't like about the plane was there was so little space in it. So this, you know, this guy whose, you know, life has basically been defined by the concept of space. And that's what made him a great footballer. But yeah, there was lots of little stories. I mean, there's some great stuff about, um, I think, in the 1990s at Juventus with, you know, basically Zidane goes to Juventus and there's a, an away trip that he's late for and uh, his manager I think Ancelotti at that point says well we're just going to have to leave without him because you know it's a team and if you're not on time you don't make the squad and uh, a few of the players on the the other players on the coach 
went to Ancelotti and said, look, we just don't leave without Zidane. He's our best player. We have to make allowances for him. And that was almost the moment that changed Ancelotti from a real disciplinarian manager who just wants, you know, players doing a job into someone who ends up basically formatting all his sides around superstars and becomes the manager you go to if you've got some star players that you need, you know, molding into shape. He was... uh, yeah, I think it's tough to think of another manager who's changed his mentality as much as Ancelotti over the course of his career. Um, and that very small anecdote about being late for a bus, I think, kind of sums up what the turning point was. Those are the 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 first the the first example of Dennis Bergkamp. The the airplane line was like very funny, but also in that in that same chapter, I thought all of the bickering between Louis Van Hall and Johan Cruyff was pretty funny, especially because all of my experience with Louis Van Hall none none of it is with the with the respect that uh, he gets in the book because the English media hated Van Hall when he was in charge of Manchester United. They like they they so all of the coverage I have ever gotten of Louis Van Hall is like extremely negative. So thinking of him just like being like lambasted by Johan Cruyff for his entire career, I just I just thought it was really funny. Yeah, that was yeah, so that's the first chapter and it was a nice way to kick off the book because they were I think very similar in a lot of ways, Van Hall and Cruyff in terms of their footballing philosophy in terms of shape and system and possession of the ball but yeah one they had completely opposite approaches in terms of how to manage individuals and secondly because they were both managing great teams at roughly the same time they had well a lot of falling out and a lot of bickering between the press which was uh yeah it was fun to go through four or five years worth of you know newspaper articles and magazine articles and find all the quotes that they directed against one another so yeah, they were two great characters, and um, you know, I think maybe the two characters who defined defined the book and maybe define European football over the last thirty years because they, uh, I think, they really helped to revolutionise the game in the early nineteen nineties. Yeah. So, uh, last question uh, from the end of the mixer, which was uh, twenty seventeen until now. I think I think football has probably most been defined by. Manchester City's dominance in the Premier League, uh, Real Madrid's three Champions Leagues in a row, and then you know their their massive combustion with Ronaldo leaving, uh, Zidane basically trying to send Bale out of town, and uh, Liverpool's dominance and challenge of the of the league title against Manchester City. Where do you kind of see all of this coalescing for the next you know two to five years? Do you think do you think that we are marching in the inevitable direction of the European Super? league i don't know about the european super league to be honest i mean you go back to the 1990s and and it's a really hot topic of conversation and you know go through world soccer magazines and they're speaking about the imminent threat of the european super league and what it's going to do i think there's a lot of barriers before we get to that point um so i'd be surprised if that happens within the next five years personally um in a tactical sense i think it's always difficult to predict but you can only look at you know the general patterns of the past 25, 30 years. And there's been a couple of things that have just continued to go in the same direction. So we've seen players become more universal. You know, forwards have to defend these days. Defenders have to start the attacks. Um, and I think that just happens more and more. The defenders are going to be ever increasingly technical and the forwards are going to be, you know, more disciplined. There's going to be fewer free roles. Um, and the other thing is just the speed of the game. You know, you, you go back to the 1990s and, the football is just played at a, such a slower pace to what it is now. And I think you can 
make a similar comparison with even 10 years ago before the before the you know rise of pressing has has really accelerated the sport even more so there's no reason to think that that will slow down so yeah just an ever faster game and uh lots of kind of you know homogenous players who can probably play in multiple positions that's that I I think the speed of the game is something I've noticed even from the time that I started watching until now. The game is much faster and there's actually there's there's this really interesting uh, ability to compare a uh, you know a, a form of soccer just getting started to its more evolved form with we had the women's world cup this summer where you know a lot of these teams uh you know basically outside of the united states a lot of these teams uh you know have they're they're 10 they're 10 years or, or younger in terms of how long that they've been you know practicing and competing as a federation and i just i thought it was really interesting to see basically you know go from watching the the women's game all summer to watch Watching the men's game and seeing how the men's game, I mean, e- even outside of athletic ability, just the, the men's game is so much further ahead tactically because it has to be. Whereas, you know, the women's game is so is so brand new. There are really only four teams that have, you know, professional, like uh, can field all professional players. I, I thought that contrast was really interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the women's, uh, the women's game is really interesting tactically because it's, um, it's just developing so quickly, um, you know, in terms right. of professionalism. Certainly in England, we've only had, you know, full-time professional players at the top level for a few years. Obviously, with that, you have players who are fitter. You have coaches who have more time to work on the training ground with specific tactical moves. So, yeah, it's, it's a, I, you know, I don't think it's unfair to say that it's a slightly different tactical world because the players have different capabilities and different attributes. And I think, uh, therefore, you will find different tactical trends. Yeah, I think I think all of that is uh I think all of that's pretty accurate. So Michael, thank you so much for joining the show. Why don't you uh why don't you give people the plug for the book and for your work over at The Athletic? Uh yeah, the book is uh is out now in the US. It's called Zonal Marking. Um it's basically a history of European football since 1992 and and guides you through the different style of play that is evident in uh, the Netherlands, Italy, France, Portugal, Spain. Uh, Germany and England and uh, yeah I've also recently joined The Athletic who uh, over in the US you probably know a lot more about them than uh, than a lot of people over here um, so yeah I've, I'm now writing soccer features for them so if you want to check that out please do. All right. Well, I have my athletic subscription. I have the, the the hard copy of the book right here. Everyone listening to this, I would really encourage you to go read both of Michael's books if you have not already. And Michael, thank you so much for joining the show. My pleasure. Thank you, Davis.